systems, they are collapsing. So I think it is somehow we need to be very careful when we are looking at the number of COVID deaths in India. At least in our, on average, I usually count six times more. Hi, this is Eric Bagley in the Rocket FM studios in Stockholm, Sweden. Time now for episode 25 of Corona Crisis, Once Upon a Pandemic. Coming up later in this episode, we'll return to a guest that we had on episode 8 about a year ago. And of course, uh, the pandemic was a different thing back then. The world was in some ways a different place, many ways a different place. And we returned to a country that uh, had been a little bit uh, off the um, the pandemic uh, radar for a while until it came back with a wicked vengeance a few weeks ago. The country is India, and our guest will be Professor Ashok Swain, head of the Department of Peace and Conflict Research at Uppsala University. He'll be on in the uh, latter half of the show to discuss the situation in India, the real uh, human tragedy of really heartbreaking, horrible scenes of destruction and uh, human catastrophe there in India. We'll get to that in a little bit later on on this program. But first, on the phone line, we have co-host Mr. Mark Vandenbosch. Mark, uh, last time we spoke, uh, your uh, infection had just been uh, revealed to you, and uh, now you're uh, several weeks into this. And uh, give us a, a medical update on your uh, your personal condition. Absolutely. Uh, I was one of the lucky ones. I had quite mild symptoms, I guess you could say. Uh, they were confirmed or been the whole family tested positive a few days later. So we all get whacked by this thing. In terms of symptoms, I think a lot of people will recognize this. Uh, in my case, it manifested itself with uh, some uh, severe headaches, some back pain, some body pain. Uh, after a few days, I had some minor, I would emphasize the word minor, chest congestion just for a couple of days, but it sort of went away. And then a really uh, stubborn, uh, dry cough. And it wasn't much worse than that. I would say that I went through the whole process in about 10 days or so. And the whole time I was functional, even though I, I wasn't completely coherent at all times, but I even managed to stay and continue to work from home. But the interesting thing, I still would say that three weeks after all this has taken place over most of the month now, I'm not completely myself. And that's something that a lot of people who have had COVID actually complain, even those who have had mild cases. And that actually ties in a little bit with a study that was just done in the UK. It was published a few days ago. The Office for National Statistics has sponsored a study of long-term COVID. And they've come to the conclusion that roughly 14% of people who have tested positive uh, suffer from long-term effects. These include fatigue what they call COVID fog, where your brain basically is not completely functional, some difficulties concentrating, and a lot of other symptoms related to that. And of course, this runs the gamut of, of, of severity, but uh, it's a real thing. And uh, there's very little known about these long-term effects. It's an emerging phenomena that needs to be further explored. But I think this might have some more long-term implications. At least in some places, and this will be a theme, I think, of this of this episode of the show, even though in some places they're talking about the de facto end of the pandemic, the United States, the vaccination rates are going way up day by day. People are starting to talk about, you know, the end of the pandemic. They're certainly not the case in India, where it's uh, it's gotten much, much, much worse. But uh, the, um, the, the long-term effects on the world and on individuals will... Uh, 
hopefully in her case, Mark, not last longer, but uh, this 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 uh, specter of long-term COVID on 14% of the population that has been infected, that could have some 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 serious uh, implications going forward. It is something that will be weaved in into into how we, we get out of this crisis over the next uh, I could years. I mean, let's face it, we're talking about years. And on that subject also, there's another study done recently talking about whether or not America will ever reach herd immunity, using as one example, but I think this will apply to other countries as well. Now, there's so many people who are still reluctant to be vaccinated that there's a real concern that herd immunity will never actually you know kick in which means that you know there'll be outbreaks of covid for years to come which is really a shame now getting back to the situation in india looking into numbers you know of course india is is a sort of an odd country both very modern but also in some areas the infrastructure is not as well developed so the statistics coming out of india are are difficult to read but the official ones is you're closing in on about 400,000 cases per day of confirmed uh, positive uh, test cases for for covid and extrapolating from that, from the statistical mortality rate, I mean, you're just looking at outrageous numbers. It's it's a human tragedy. And it seems like, just from, from some of the stories I've read on, it seems like uh, quite a few younger people are being affected by COVID. But they have this other strain that, I don't know if it's more lethal or just more contagious. So, Mark, do you want to do a, a quick uh, around the world? Do you have any other observations from other parts of the planet? Very quickly, yes. Uh, first, and I do have the latest statistics on, on vaccination per, per country, basically. And worldwide, we're talking about only about 3% at this point fully vaccinated. So it's nothing. We've had the vaccine for about five months or so now. We've only managed to vaccinate about 3% of the world population. It's, just it's just on that topic, Mark, and I can I just interject a little bit? I just uh, just striking on the news last night here in Sweden, how uh, and this maybe also plays in a little bit with the sort of maybe reluctance or let's say laziness of parts of the population not to get vaccinated. Uh, here in Sweden, there, there seems like there's plenty of vaccine and plenty of people to administer the vaccine and people aren't showing up to get vaccinated. Some of the, uh, the centers that have been set up around Stockholm People, there's there's like nobody there. There's, you know, dozens of, of uh, people to, to, to do the shots and plenty of vaccine, but no one's showing up. Yes, only about 40% of the available times were actually booked towards the end of last week, which is idiocy, really. A lot of these vaccines then need to be discarded. They're not usable anymore. So they're opening it up. But what upsets me a little bit is they're opening it up now to people under the age of 60. But they're still saying that they're going to do this uh, incrementally by age groups. And they've already demonstrated it's a huge waste of doses to do it this way. And they're going to continue doing this. I find this absolutely absurd. I mean, as someone who has actually been confirmed to have had the virus, uh, do you yourself plan on getting vaccinated, uh, even though you uh, supposedly do have antibodies? Absolutely. No question about it. Yes. And uh, I'll be honest with you, it's for also selfish reasons, for traveling purposes. It's going to be absolutely necessary to demonstrate, I think, to the authorities, if you want to go from country to country, that you have been vaccinated. So from simply that perspective, especially with family members in other parts of the world, uh, I will get vaccinated as soon as I can. Okay, let's get back to your around-the-world vaccination update. What I was going to say about that is uh, some countries obviously have been uh, very, very successful and very aggressive uh, at this. Uh, Israel has been one of the prime examples of where about 60% of the population is fully vaccinated. In other words, both shots when that is required of that particular vaccine. In the United States, you're up to 31% at this point, which I guess is much better than Sweden, since in Sweden, I think we're still slightly under 10%. But there is actually 7.4% is the exact number of people fully vaccinated in Sweden, so extremely low. 
and some countries also where there's a lot of people that are that have concerns uh, sort of traditionally very anti-vaccines basically anti-anything talking about france specifically uh, they are still under 10 percent there and france is still uh, as an outrageous death rate and uh, 400 people passed away yesterday due to covid so we're moving very very slowly on this and uh, i don't think we're being very rational that's what again one of the sub-themes of this is the uh, spatial uh, differentiation between vaccinations, uh, infections, outbreaks, and uh, perspectives on this on this uh, worldwide issue. This will be a, certainly something to study uh, for social scientists for decades to come. But the way different countries have, have uh, responded to this and the impacts on the various societies, uh, much of Asia, pretty much nothing. And uh, India, which seemed like it was doing quite well until just a few weeks ago, uh, has now become perhaps uh, the most horrifying and um, just extreme example of this pandemic. Maybe this, the India outbreak, will be what we remember most about the pandemic in uh, years ahead. I think that's what happened also in the uh, 1918 uh, pandemic. The biggest numbers, and of course, these are just uh, estimates because uh, if we have a hard time getting true numbers today, you can imagine what it was like over 100 years ago. But we're talking about millions and millions of fatalities in India. Of course, the, the big outlier in all this is China, right? I mean, that doesn't make much sense, does it? Well, of course, we can always question the numbers coming out of China as well, especially in those early days before they really revealed it to the world, the extent of the, the pandemic. Well, uh, I'll close out my 360 in uh, some lighter affair. Disneyland in Anaheim, California, reopened a couple of days ago. How about that? The world's happiest place, right? <laughs> Yes. So you have these lines of people lined up with their Mickey Mouse ears and uh, somewhat flamboyant uh, outfits because some people really like to dress up when they go through these theme parks, especially in the United States. And they're queuing up. Uh, there's no social distancing going on at this point. On, on that note, let's uh, transition now into the uh, interview segment of this podcast. Corona Crisis, Once Upon a Pandemic, episode 25, featuring uh, now Professor Ashok Swain. He's the head of the Department of Peace and Conflict Research at Uppsala University, expert on India. And we'll get a real uh, in-depth look into the situation in India and uh, some reflections on uh, some of the causes, some of the failures, and some of the uh, future uh, ramifications of this uh, wave two, the second wave, as um, as it's being called in India, where in other places it, it's, it's been the third wave, even the fourth wave. But in India, they're calling this the second wave of the pandemic, and it's been uh, just, just incredibly uh, tragic. And uh, we'll uh, learn a lot more about that now with Professor Ashok Swain explaining how the situation came to pass the way it has currently in India. You know, the India got a bit late, the first wave, particularly it started increasing in the last year, June, July, and August, September, October, because the previous months they went for very serious lockdown, um, lockdown of months. Uh, that really brought a number of uh, economic crises of nature, migrant crises. Uh, people have to move from um, the urban areas to rural areas. So then when the first wave took place, of course, there has been issues with the data, how many people were affected. Of course, it went up to 100,000 more, but the number of deaths in India has been always a, a number of cases. This data has always a problem. But I think what happened by October uh, last year, things looked uh, quite you know, um, less number of cases, cases start going down, uh, even if the number of cases we might have the problem, but the trend-wise, it looked like when going down. 
there was also a major general election took place in a, one of the Indian states in Bihar in October, November sometime. And uh, there was a speculation because of huge public meetings. So there was a speculation that it would lead to also more cases, but that didn't. And then it went in a, some way in a down and then the vaccine started coming in. Uh, so there was this kind of uh, euphoria in India that they have actually conquered the COVID crisis much better than many other countries in the world. Uh, they started giving examples how even the ruling party started giving examples how the uh, United States has failed and we did succeed, means India did succeed. So, I, I mean, that, that there are all these kind of things, the declaring victory before taking all kinds of precautions, not taking all kinds of precautions, allowing say, five states to go to elections in March, April, month of March and April, uh, allowing the the Hindu festivals like Holi's and also the Kumela. There is a, you know, millions of people go down to Ganges River to take a dip, allowing those things. And at the same time, not really giving enough vaccination or not vaccinating people because they, they were engaged in the similar type of, what you call it, vaccine diplomacy, like competing with China. They were trying to send more vaccines. Of course, they had to because of export. And also they gave some free vaccines because they wanted to compete with China in the vaccine diplomacy. So all these things, we watch. of course, the second wave was expected like any pandemic. And they should have expected it. They should have really listened to the advice of the public health experts and scientists, but they didn't. So I think this is absolutely kind of uh, not listening to science, not listening to sage advice, not listening to the trend, just declaring victory and going ahead with the politics. And this is what it has led to. They mentioned data there as well. And now, do we really know what the true situation is in India? I mean, of course, you see on, on the news images, just, just horrible, heartbreaking images from India, from the hospitals, from these uh, crematoriums and all the rest. And, and the data, whether it's 400,000 infections in a day, are we getting an accurate picture of what actually is happening in India at this point? I mean, the data has been a problem for uh, some years now, but uh, with, particularly with the COVID data, it has become a major problem. I argue that usually you need a good data to prepare yourself, particularly in this kind of public health emergency. You know which areas to target, which areas to go for the lockdown, or which areas to keep uh, a special eye on not to spread the virus or somehow to get, prepare yourselves. But when you really manipulate the data for the politics, uh, then, of course, you don't get it, uh, that kind of thing. So what has happened, there are a few things which has happened. The data on how many cases, of course, everybody doubts that this is undercounting. But of course, you, you don't have a particular figure to say that if this is taking place or not. But the COVID deaths, which has become really exposed how the data is being collected, because if you look at the COVID death rate and India always have been from the very beginning saying that our death rate, India's death rate per capita comparing to the cases have been extremely low compared to US or Brazil or other countries in Europe. But the question is, they are not counting the deaths. 
uh, only they are counting the deaths which are coming from the hospital and which do not have other diseases. So only the specific COVID which has killed the people, they are counting. If you have a uh, other sorts of morbidity and such, then you are not calcul- You know, you are not part of the. If you had a cancer, if you had a high blood pressure or diabetes, then they are counting as that death rather than the COVID deaths. And also, large number of people those who are not able to get into the hospital, so they are staying at home because the, there are no hospital beds available. And so when you stay home and you die, then of course you are not being counted as a COVID death. You are counted as, you know, any other reason rather than about COVID deaths. But when you look at the number of, in the rural areas, it might be difficult to guess how many people have died because India's death certificates are also a kind of, you know, it's a long-term process. So we might get to know exactly when there will be a proper data available on the total death uh, certificates have been issued in more than a year time. But now at the urban areas where the funerals are taking place, if you take the funeral data, then you see that in some cases, three to even in some cases, 15 to 16 times more cremations taking place in the crematoriums. Uh, so the crematorium, or the you know the Indian, the particularly the Hindu cremations takes place by in a burning wood and open. It should be open air fire. Uh, whereas of course there are Muslim populations, they are going for the graveyard. Uh, but uh, the cremation ground statistics is is completely uh, uh, unthinkable in that sense because as I mentioned, in some places three, in some places they have found out even the fifteen to twenty times more, and in some cases. So when there are electrical crematorium, those kind of systems, they are collapsing. So I think it is somehow we need to be very careful when we are looking at the number of COVID deaths in India. At least in, on average, I usually count six times more. Six times more. So as bad as it is, as bad yes. as we know it is, it could be it is most likely much, much worse. I mean, what, what, what is this doing to India? I mean, what, first of all, what is, what is this doing? demonstrating about India as a, as, a, as a state, as a society, and what will be the lasting effects on, on national morale and uh, social divisions in the country, trust in government and democracy. Of course, we're in the, the, very, the very midst of this, of, this, of this tragic situation, but can you already start thinking about what, what, what is this doing to India? India is, of course, a very divided society, divided country in many ways, ethnically, uh, religiously, on the, on the basis of class, there is a huge division, uh, not only social division, but also economic division. The first wave, or to control the first wave, with the kind of lockdown measures and also the other measures they took, it was mostly affecting the poor migrant laborers uh, in the urban areas and also the people that you went back. So it's mostly poor or rural, say, poor uh, slum dwellers. Uh, migrant laborers, they were affected in the first one very badly. Of course, it uh, got some attention, international attention and local attention, but it was not exactly really these people matter in um, in the Indian political, social discourse that much. I'm sorry to say that, but that's the fact. Then uh, what has happened now in the second, which I call the second wave, has really taken the India's middle class to a large extent, urban dwellers. Those who were 
thinking for a long that they do have some resources, some power, some ability, which they will get over this sort of crisis. They, I mean, their life is much more, they will never be subjected to this kind of not able to get a medical seat or medical bed, not able to get oxygen, not able to get the basic medical care. Those who have never, they, they had never imagined that. So they had an impression that India is a, uh, quite, you know, different. India has become rich. India has become powerful. So they will be able to manage it with their kind of resources that you have. But that has really uh, what you call the confidence or the class and caste superiority, as if you can say, has been uh, really affected quite seriously. Uh, so what it will lead to is quite early as far as I see, because, uh, you know, the India is going through a or has been going through for some years now, uh, Hindu majoritarianism uh, in a very bad way. So there is a strong religious nationalism which is there, and the regime is uh, was thriving or is thriving on that one. So when that is the case, whether this kind of uh, public health emergency, whether it will lead to any kind of political changes, I don't know. I cannot say that. I cannot foresee that, right? Because unless it becomes more, the public health emergency becomes much more severe, much more serious, and much longer than what it is, probably it will have certain kind of political implications. But at present, there are several, the middle class or the Hindu upper middle class, which were real rock behind the Hindu nationalist regime in India, um, they have become seriously affected. There is open criticism is taking place against the regime, against the leader, and uh, all the kind of uh, things which you expect. So they are they have started for the first time in the last seven years of being critical of the what is going on. But whether that will lead to the political changes, I, I don't know yet. I cannot really foresee unless it continues for long. There is another thing which is also has brought certain kind of a comparative perspective, the India-China. Uh, there has been always, when China got affected in the early 2020, the Indians were boasting quite a lot, expecting those in Chinese industry or the foreign industries which are working in China, they will move to India, all kinds of those kind, you know, the boasting, the gloating was going on in India. Uh, while now Indians have realized, well, China have gone out of it, China is becoming, you know, out of this trouble and doing well, Indians have got into this. And so there is a, there is somehow it has also led to realization that they have not really this type of whatever the class or the the way China can handle their government or India can handle. So in a sense, it has really brought certain kind of uh, realities back to the people, those who were really thinking that they are more, you know, they or the nation has reached a league, which actually not, it hasn't. I think the geopolitics of this is, is fascinating. Uh, you mentioned India vis-a-vis China. What about some of the other um, relations? I mentioned you mentioned earlier the the idea of vaccine diplomacy and using uh, vaccines because India is, from what I understand, a major um, producer of uh, of medicines, and I guess they were manufacturing uh, vaccines and using this as as a diplomatic tool. But there's been 
some some hard feelings around uh, what's transpiring in India the last uh, few weeks or so vis-a-vis other countries, even the United States. Can you perhaps uh, speak a bit about that, about some of the geopolitical implications of this um, outbreak, this most recent outbreak in India, the second wave, and how it's, re- it's affecting its relations with not just China, but other countries as well? India has been uh, traditionally moving, was moving towards more of a pro-U.S. in the last, I mean, India used to be close to Soviet Union in the Cold War time, though in spite of the fact that it was uh, claiming to have a non-aligned foreign policy, but it was close to, to Soviet Union. After the collapse of Soviet Union, it was trying to keep maintain a kind of relationship which is uh, uh, somewhat uh, equidistant of some sort. Uh, but then it has, for the last several years, it has started moving very close to U.S. Uh, and for in the Trump, under the Trump administration, it, it was very much the present prime minister, India's prime minister, who really, you know, because of similar type of political ideology, political philosophy, the right-wing populism, so they were very closely together. And then India-China had also a territorial dispute last year, so it was almost a war, you know, for the first time since 1962. So it was, things were really becoming, and of course, India-Pakistan relationship has been a troublesome relationship. Uh, what had happened in this case that when uh, the China started producing China-Russians, particularly China started doing a lot of uh, vaccine diplomacy, and India, as you said, has been traditionally a major vaccine producer. It's used to produce 60% of vaccines of the world, all the vaccines, not the the COVID, uh, but the previous vaccines are 60%. So India has a um, vaccine production, which is very rich, very, you know, long-term capability. But India has also has done extremely, has been successful in eradicating smallpox or polio. Those are the vaccine programs in within India is quite old. I mean, it's something they are quite proud. And which is rightly so, considering such a you know poor large country. What happened when India started? India had this uh, with the AstraZeneca, the Oxford University, the, they produced one called Covishield. They called that uh, vaccine. And then there is also a local produced, which was done. I mean, of course, it was a vaccine producers, but they started it was called the Covaxin. So Covishield and Covaxin, those are two uh, different vaccines were produced in India. Uh, what they did, of course, uh, Covishield, which was uh, more uh, um, the regular, uh, you know, the testing had been done, but the Covaxin, they usually try to so-called made in India because the Covishield has this, uh, the foreign tag of Oxford University and AstraZeneca. So they really started doing this make in India Covaxin. So I think after they produced it, what they did, they went very slowly of uh, vaccine inside the country, but they started exporting vaccine. It's also economic in nature. Also, they had certain kind of, the company had signed certain kind of agreements. But at the same time, uh, they went to give a free vaccine to certain African countries, certain, uh, you know, in the, even Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Maldives, Nepal, because they were competing with China, because China has been quite active there and putting the vaccines there too. So, so this is what uh, the, and this is the time when also they started talking about creating a quad vaccine, because you, you probably know there is a quad uh, has come up, uh, which is supposed to be seen as a NATO of Asia, where US, Japan, Australia, and India have come together 
So it's a kind of, uh, you know, new kind of alliance which is building up to keep China in control. So the Quad uh, meeting, the first meeting of the leaders, which took place in March, I think, yeah, in March, and uh, there was a decision that there will be quad vaccines, you know. So there will be Americans and the will Australians will help. Uh, so Americans and Japanese will help to produce. The Indians will produce it, and Australians will distribute. So some some sort of uh, this kind of outway was there. But what happened when the India's second COVID wave started being affected, and they realized, hey, they haven't really vaccinated their vaccinated their own people. They started blaming that, okay, so it's not the raw materials are not coming from the U.S. So as I understand, the raw materials have been a certain kind of restrictions with the Trump administration output, which has now been to a certain extent taken out. But that has not been the real issue of not vaccinating enough people within India when they are producing the vaccines. So it was just to put the blame on certain blame when it was coming on the Indian government themselves. They were trying to blame the United States. What is happening now, the U.S., U.K., Europe, Japan, they have started providing aid. Remember, since 2004, India was not accepting foreign aid at this time of national emergencies, particularly when the uh, tsunami took place in 2004, December, for the first time India decided not to take the foreign aid. And since then it was not taken, but now it has been forced to take the foreign aid. So while they are taking the foreign aid, particularly from the West, they are hiding of taking the aid from China or getting the medical facilities for some medical uh, supplies. China is providing huge medical supplies uh, now to India, I think 60 to 70 big Planes, full plane loads have already come until yesterday. But the Indian media is quite silent about it because particularly they don't want to say this because of the relationship with China. So it's a, it's a very strange situation has emerged in a sense. And you see, the, the, the kind of it is that really there is a lack of coordination, uh, lack of leadership, which is really putting this, which has made this situation worse. The things which we are hearing about the oxygen Deficit in India, uh, it's another thing. Like India has been one of the major producers of oxygen, but mostly industrial oxygen. They have been exporting oxygen abroad, but they didn't really keep it for themselves when they really need it. And now, for the last two weeks, patients are dying in Delhi, Mumbai, Mumbai, or now today in Bangalore, in Karnataka. These kind of big cities when the people are dying because of lack of oxygen. And I, the state where I come from, Odisha, which is a poor state, but some of the industries produce huge amount of oxygen. They still have this oxygen. So it's not that the oxygens are not available in the country. Oxygens are there. But the lack of leadership, lack of preparedness, which is not bringing the oxygen to the people, in the hospitals. So it's a, that's why still after two weeks, you will see here every day dozens of people dying in the hospitals due to lack of oxygen. Where, I mean, you say lack of leadership, what sort of behind these failures? You see, the public health emergency like this is uh, very difficult for a regular Indian-style politician who has no formal education to really take a grip on this. Uh, considering India's challenge, considering the kind of uh, 
issue involved, uh, the global implications, the kind of uh, the virus, the way it reacts, you need the support and you need the leadership of particularly the people those who understand it. Of course, the political leadership needs to provide them the, uh, the backing, but you should not really deal with this. So I think it has happened that in India, as I said, there is no no one there whom you can look up to who knows about the subject. There is nobody they have paid. There's no, not, a, not a single coordinating person or the nodal person or nodal authority which is dealing with it. And India is a vast country, huge country with, with uh, all sorts of issues. And also it's a federal country. So what has happened this case that uh, the lack of understanding of the political leadership, what what kind of issues they are dealing with, uh, trying to they, they are one of the another issue is that they had if they thought that if they can really manage the media, they can manage the pandemic. So they, if you can really suppress, oppress, push, pull the media and try to always find a favorable report, then of course you think that you will be able to manage the pandemic. It's not. There is certain yes, but to a certain extent, but of course the reality will catch you. Catch up. Then the other thing has been. The way the priorities has been, the priority has never been the governance. The priority, is, as I said, the India has been to create this kind of Hindu-Muslim divisions or the Hindu-majoritarianism to you. So that is politically has been beneficial. So what happened, like which country just before you expected second or the when you started the already started really growing the number going for allowing for religious congregation congregation of millions of people taking the dip in a you know in the, in a river water at the same time because why they did it because they as a hindu nationalist government they cannot really stop a hindu or the, if they think that they will stop a hindu festival it will not go go for in support of them. So you go for that kind of festivals in the name of your support, political support, but you totally overlooked the science, what it says, why you should not do it. Similarly, they went for election in five states, particularly the way for elections, you can give this kind of, of course, we, we understand the elections took place in the U.S. Um, I wrote a piece last week about this as well. But, you know, the, there have been elections taking place in U.S., in New Zealand, in um, South Korea. But you can't really draw the conclusion from there and put it to yourself in a context like India. You cannot have hundreds of thousands of people coming to the public meeting without maintaining, you know, any sort of uh, social discomfort or, or masking. So, so it's in a sense, they went for the for them. It was not governance. It was politics which really made the call. They took the call. And as you know, in, in a public health emergency of this nature, when you are really dealing with the pandemic, you must go along the science you must believe in what the experts do say. You should not, the religion, the politics, those kind of things, you could combine with it or you give that the importance at the cost of what science says, what the experience says, what the other countries do, how the other countries have managed, then you will end up in this kind of situation. That's why they have ended up in this situation. And now that the situation does seem to be 
out of control. Uh, are they changing their their approach to managing this? And where do you see it really going from here? It seems like there's there's uh, no no uh, end or no daylight in sight at this point. It's a very interesting question. And I was just before I talked to you, I was uh, responding to East Asia uh, newspaper request on this issue. You, you probably have heard like, for the last two days, the in embassies in India, New Delhi, they are asking for help from the even opposition youth groups to provide them oxygen. Can you believe it? In Delhi, the embassies like the Philippine, Philippines embassy and also yesterday the, uh, the high commission, New Zealand high commission, which is, as you know, the British, you know, because of the British colony, we call them high commissions. So the diplomats of New Zealand and the Philippines last two days have asked for the help of oxygen from the opposition youth wings rather than to the government because the government has not able to provide them. So how, why it is happening? Is it country of such a huge country, relatively strong, powerful? Uh, so why it has not able to basically provide certain these kind of very small facilities to the, even to the uh, embassies? You don't expect this. Of course, you can expect the poor, the slum dwellers. Probably they can be overlooked. Or even they, you can overlook some of your lower middle class people. But you cannot really, or imaginable in the Indian context, that the government can be overlooking the demand from the diplomatic community which are staying in 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 the capital. So how you can justify what is going on? I think what has happened is that my understanding is that it is absolutely the leadership doesn't know how to deal with it because leadership was not expecting at all. And it has re, it was also still hoping that they can manage the media again and get out with it. Like take for example, when these things came up, the, the embassies were openly in, on, in the social media asking for help from outside. India's foreign minister, rather than providing support, is busy with denying that this has ever happened, totally giving not the, the truth. So, so in a sense, I think they realize, they think that it is not at this time accepting the mistakes they have committed of not being able to prepare themselves, but taking the blame and moving on, getting the, to get used to what, or get to what they can do, take the help of the different steps, try to coordinate in a proper way, rather than in Delhi, that you, you won't believe what is happening in Delhi, because Delhi is a state which is, uh, of course, the union capital. It is a kind of semi-state. It's not real estate, but a semi-state, and it's oh, it's uh, the local, uh, the provincial or uh, government is uh, by an opposition party, which is not exactly the party which is ruling the country. So there is a, they are having real tussle, political tussle. Who will do this between the Delhi's own government and also the central government? So the Supreme Court has to come into between and ask the central government to provide help. So what I hear that till today evening, they are supposed to, those, uh, the, yeah, this Monday today, Monday evening, they are supposed to provide the uh, central government has to provide this much of uh, oxygen. So in a sense, there is, a, there is not yet the real, you know, there are not realization or willingness 
ಅದು ಲೀಡ್ ಪೊಲಿಟಿಕಲ್ ಲೀಡರ್ಶಿಪ್ ಟು ಟೇಕ್ ದ ಟಾಸ್ಕ್ ಆಫ್ ರಿಯಲಿ ಪ್ರೊವೈಡಿಂಗ್ ದ ಬೇಸಿಕ್ ಮಿನಿಮಮ್ ವಾಟ್ ಎವರ್ ದೇ ಕ್ಯಾನ್ ಡೂ ಸ್ಟಿಲ್ ದೇ ಆರ್ ಎನ್ಕೇಜ್ಡ್ ಇದರ್ ಇನ್ ಸಮ್ ಸಮ್ ಪ್ಲೇಸಸ್ ದೇ ಹ್ಯಾವ್ ಟೋಟಲಿ ಡಿಸಪಿಯರ್ ಓನ್ಲಿ ಪ್ಲೇಸಸ್ ದೇ ಆರ್ ಕಮಿಂಗ್ when they want they think that they can really suppress the information I mean, what about the, the vaccinations is there an ongoing vaccination program there or is it all just just dealing with the immediate uh, infections and and trying to make the most out of that or is there some move towards vaccination that might lead to eventually slowing down this massive outbreak in india uh, <laughs> i think the the vaccinations they started claiming that they will vaccine everyone from the first of may they opened it up or from the 18 onwards years onwards but uh, of course they don't have the vaccines available and, uh, i as i saw some of the russian vaccine sputnik has come i think first uh, of may which had arrived but still several states don't have vaccines particularly the people those who are waiting for their second dose uh, of the vaccine um, my in-laws they are uh, they have got the first dose they are in delhi but they are not able to get the second dose yet uh, so they are all waiting for that many people those who have not been then this is is thank you for asking this questions because the india's main vaccine producers do who was producing the vaccines together with the AstraZeneca and the Covishield the Oxford University that's called Covishield he escaped to UK last week and they gave a statement saying that he has been threatened by political leadership to you know in all sorts of ways so he doesn't want to go back to India now he is he he says that he you know every day he makes a statement then the, in the few hours changes it then he said no i'm going back again but i'm going to produce some vaccines in the uk not anymore in india so something of the giving a mixed picture what is happening that the major vaccine producer of india is not even in india he has just moved to uk and um, i think he gave a, an interview to the times in london Uh, last week saying blaming the politicians what if, what if i remember correctly the powerful very powerful politicians of india and everybody is making guess who is doing that but the thing is the of course very powerful politicians must be from the ruling party politicians those who are threatening him and what kind of way things are so it's a, it's, it's a somehow also the people because the way the cities have been affected the workers have been affected lockdowns have been imposed i would be surprised it will be they will be able to produce their own vaccines that much in, in now because they you should have kept it or they should have used it but now there are also some countries giving them back those vaccines which are the european countries and the us are giving some of the vaccines back so we don't know yet what will happen uh, how the vaccines will be really administered but i think uh, at this time it looks very unplanned only a lot of again political decision making doesn't match with what has been available on the ground uh, and what is the way they how they are going to really produce that much of vaccines to vaccinate such a large number of people i mean you know more than a billion of people to vaccinate they are still so 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 in a, in a sense it's probably once you have these vaccinations properly done it will able to somehow there is certain kind of normalcy might return but it will take some time to see how this is this vaccine program is moving forward
Well, we'll certainly monitor the situation, and uh, hopefully uh, Ashok have a chance to speak to you again uh, with, uh, with better tidings in the weeks ahead about the situation in India. So thank you very much, Professor Ashok Swain, for joining us here on the podcast, head of the Department of Peace and Conflict Research at Uppsala University. Thank you, Ashok, and best wishes to, to you and your relatives back in India. Thank you. It's my pleasure talking to you. Please.